the first step to solving churn is to finding and defining the problem. Looking at who are our customers that are winning and saying, what is unique about them that is missing from our clients that are churning can be a helpful exercise as well. I'm Johnny Page. I'm Matt Verlet, And this is the South County Podcast. Matt, we get the privilege of it being a part of our job that we sit down every Wednesday and we get to chat about business. And I'll tell you what, the thing that made me super excited about joining SaaS Academy was the first room that I was in where I could talk about business for like 10 hours and someone's eyes didn't glaze over. Like I found my room because I don't know how many conversations my wife had to suffer through of me just like just trying to say that no one was happier that we joined SaaS Academy than our wives. So we could start talking to other people about business. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so I figured today would be fun for us to talk a little bit about how we reduce churn in SaaS companies. You cool to indulge me? Let's riff a little bit on what I think. But it's not the thing that most people want to solve. It's kind of like we think all the time about like what's chocolate, what's broccoli. This is broccoli for most founders. They would much rather focus on acquiring new customers than they would solve and churn. But data supports. And I think you've got a great model for thinking through like how challenging it is when churn is high. Your marketing and sales game have got to be strong. So I don't know, you down to you down to riff on how we think about solving churn? Yeah, I'm in. And here's how I get people to pay attention to it when I feel like they're not paying attention to it. Because you're right, marketing is sexy, sales is sexy. Everyone wants to talk about that all the time. And it's not that you don't have to do that kind of stuff. But what I say to founders is like, what if you could do just as good of a job at sales and marketing as you're doing right now, but your company made twice the money over a six month period. And then it'd be like, oh, that's cool. How do I double the money? It's like, stop freaking losing customers, right? And focus on yeah. retention because the retention is like, it's like building a house on a bad foundation, right? It's going to fall over. And so like, if you're thinking about that and you're like, oh, I don't know if I want to listen to this episode on churn right now, like imagine that you could 2X or 3X or 4X or 5X the return on investment of your sales and marketing operation over like a six or 12 month time horizon. And that should get your attention. You're yeah. squeezing the lemon just as hard. Why not get twice as much juice? Like mathematically, it's it's not an opinion. Like mathematically, it will happen if you fix your churn. A hundred percent. We have a calculator for this. I wish I knew the URL for it, but you can actually go visualize. I think the thing that is most attention grabbing is when you start to put this onto what's called the gross ceiling calculator yeah. and you understand how impactful it is and how much you have to grow meaning acquiring new customers, just if you have like 3% churn monthly, 5% churn monthly, what most would think is that's a good number. I'm okay with that. When you start to plot it out over time and you see the demand it puts, if you have aspirations of growing to you know, $5 million company, $10 million company, it's very, very hard to do that if you got 5% churn monthly. Yeah. And so do you happen to know the, the URL? Of course I do. I'll put it in the show notes because it's got like hyphens in it and stuff, but we'll put it in the show notes in the description. But I'm pulling it up to give an example, right? So the concept of a growth ceiling, right? Just like to frame this out really, really simply. In every recurring revenue business, there will be a time, your churn is a percentage, right? Of your customers or of your revenue, depending on how you measure it. There will be a time, assuming that you're getting the same number of customers every month, where the percentage of your total customers that you're losing will equal the number of customers that you're gaining. And that is the churn ceiling. That's essentially the maximum size that your company will grow to 
before you have to do one of three things because there's only there's three levers. I'm actually giving a talk about this for our clients at the same event that you're talking at. I actually I'm calling it the three engines of a recurring revenue business, right? Because you have an acquisition engine, a retention engine, and you know the, the third one is like the customer value engine where you make customers more valuable. Those are the three things. The only way you move that churn ceiling is to do one of those three things. Get more customers every month, keep yeah. them longer, or increase their value, right? And so to put some numbers to it, just with like round numbers, let's say that you have 100 customers right now, you're adding 10 customers a month, which sounds pretty reasonable, right? If you're churning five per month, let's say your average revenue for customers is like 500 bucks a month. Again, I'm just using round numbers, right? So at 5% monthly churn rate, you'll hit that growth ceiling at like 95K in MRR. So a little bit under 100 grand. If you're doing... 3% churn instead of five, which doesn't feel that exciting, your growth ceiling goes up to over $150,000 a month. So like going from 95K to 153K, just by taking turn from 5% to 3%, not getting any better at customer acquisition, not raising your prices, not doing setup fees, not doing any other nifty stuff that we teach people, literally just churn 2% fewer customers every single month. And you will 1.5x your MRR threshold before your turn, your growth will start to cap out. Like, yeah, that's an example that hopefully that makes sense. If you're following along on audio, you're not like, oh my God, Matt's doing math. But like, it's a material impact. I think it's really startling to see it graphed out. Go hit up the show notes and check out the calculator because it is really surprising to see how many months away you are from when does, when does growth stall? Yeah. Really like it's about six to 12 months prior to you actually hitting the growth ceiling. The growth slows way down. And that's just a formula for I'm working really hard but the needle's not moving as much as it used to. So there's a point in which growth stalls and there's a point in which you actually hit the ceiling, you can't grow past it. So we say all that to say, solving churn is one of the most impactful things you can be focused on. And I would say even outside its impact in the growth ceiling is there's an impact on the market you're trying to serve. It's a signal. If for nothing else, churned accounts are telling us either one, we're bringing in the wrong customers or two, we're not actually solving their problem the way that we think we should be. And so that's a big risk to the plans when you think about where you want to be three years and five years from now. So first off, I will say when we run our clients through this growth ceiling calculator, nine times out of 10, the focus is going to be around solving churn because it is so impactful. If we can just stop the leaky bucket first, any work that we do, we kind of earn ourselves some time to experiment and find the right channel and acquisition. If we solve churn second, we have to be so good in acquisition that we outperform the leaky bucket, which just puts a, it's a lot of pressure, right? You kind of have like, yeah, it's very difficult. So when we start by solving churn, I think through this and I'm curious to get your thoughts, Matt, I start at the beginning of the customer journey, right? Mm -hmm. So if churn is a problem for you and your business, first off, actually, let me back up. You got to be measuring churn. How often? Yeah. <laughs> how often are we like getting you know clients in the door with this? Maybe once or twice a month or a quarter that they're taking a look at their churn, or they knew at one time. And and so, uh, Matt, you're the numbers guy. I want you to walk us through how to make sure that we're set up to what's minimum effective dose for making sure that we're measuring churn in the business. Monthly logo churn. That's the minimum effective dose. So literally the number of customers that you started with, you need to know that. And the number of customers that you lose in a month, right? So if you started this month with 100 customers and you lose 10, 10% logo churn. Like 
just measuring that one thing and, and like it's taking all of my self-restraint not to tell you the five different ways that I like to measure it on my scorecard. But like if you're not measuring at all and you're like, what the heck is percentage logo churn? If I asked you what that number was and your your number starts with, well, like if that's you, it's okay. <laughs> just start with percent logo churn, right? How many mm-hmm. customers did I have when I started the month? How many did I lose this month? Whatever that divides out to, that's your percent logo churn. Like just start with that. How many buyers, how many human beings did I lose versus did I keep? So that's yeah. the problem to solve in its purest form. Yeah. Uh, in my perspective, like, and I know you'll agree with this, that the, I raised the bar a little bit. There's three things. If we're going to go solve churn, there's good, better, best mm-hmm. in, in setting up the diagnostic phase. Because I believe problem well-defined is a problem half solved. So many people try to go solve churn and they're actually not sure of the problem. They just start throwing new initiatives at it. And we really fatigue ourselves, our customers, and our team because we're throwing spaghetti up against the wall to see what's sick. So the diagnostic phase, I would add in what you're measuring, you got to know logo churn. We need to know revenue churn because you might have, you're keeping logos, but they're average revenue per customer is going down. Yeah, you're down keeping, all your, your keeping all your low value customers and churn all your high value customers for sure. Yep. Yep. So look at revenue churn. And then the third one is look at churn based on their phase in the customer journey. Not by time, not how long were they here, but how far into the customer journey did they get? Did they get past onboarding? Did they get into yeah. adoption of the product? Did they ever expand? Understanding how far into using your solution did they get? Because that's going to give us some really helpful signals into what's the source of churn. So, yeah. And then anything else to have, you need to know your customer journey to be able to do that. I think that's the other thing is like sketching out what those key phases of like usage and adoption are over the course of someone's, even just your first 12 months, right? Just starting with something. I mean, I think that, you know, and that's why I answered the way I did. You said minimum effective dose is like, I agree 100% with everything you laid out, but I'm also thinking through the lens of like, if someone's literally not measuring churn. Go measure logo churn today while you yeah. go build everything that Johnny just told you, which is what you should be doing. Yeah. And you can start really simply with like, you can consider how many days or at what act, what point would we consider someone activated? Yeah. yeah. That's a big, if you don't have the full customer journey and there's lots of different segments, it's like, when do we even you know qualitatively say, hey, this person's been onboarded. They're past that initial phase. It's really important to recognize churn from there separate from someone who has fully adopted the product, right? Like we're getting two totally different signals. If someone didn't really have a chance to get all the way into onboarding, it's probably has something to do with like how we bring customers to that time, first time they're experiencing value. And when it's fully adopted, totally different issue if they've been on the product for a year and they just outgrew it, right? So we want to be able to tell a difference between those. So that's good, better, best of the diagnostic phase. Make sure we got some metrics in place. The second better is that every time a customer leaves, we're having a conversation with them. You got to talk to them. You have to figure out why. You want to hear the words that they're saying of why they're falling short. What are you going to next? And, you know, there's a very simple just to make the ask. Not everyone will say yes to go sit down. But I like to just say, hey, you know, when someone submits a cancellation, I like to reach out and say, hey, my entire mission, everything we do here at, you know, company name is to make sure that we serve people like you. Would you mind doing me a favor just to give me the feedback? I'd consider it a gift. I need 15 minutes to know where we fell short. And that will help me serve people like you moving forward. And 
80% of the time, someone's going to jump on the call and they're going to share with you where you fell short. I'd make sure those calls are recorded. And then you start to look at patterns. You know, how many times am I hearing? You know, if you just do a call with 80% of the people that leave, it's going to be very hard for you not to identify that problem. Matt, anything add on that second point? I think it's worth double clicking. I'd love to know your thoughts on two things that are on my mind that I think will be on the mind of a lot of people listening. The first one is when does it make sense to require this conversation as part of departing versus when is it an optional ask or does it make sense? And the second question is do you always do it like live with someone on a call or is there a way to do this for companies that might be more at scale or lower annual contract value? Like, can you do it through a form? What are the ups and downs of that? It's like, do you always have to do it? Is it required as part of the exit flow? Is it always a conversation? Those are the two things yeah. that I think would probably help people to, to double click on. Yeah, let me start with, so first off, if it's a more transactional product, higher volume cancellations, uh, you know, low ACV, we're talking about people that are paying like, you know, less than a hundred bucks a month. You need to engineer a form first, a cancellation yeah. flow. So when they go to key, you're probably, they're probably not sending emails. They're able to cancel right there in their account. You need to have a flow that asks them to identify why they're leaving. And there's great teardowns on this online. I just go look at, you know, cancellation flow. If you try to go, actually just try and cancel your Netflix account and you'll see what a great one looks like. There's, there's many <laughs> of them out there. So if it's low transaction, you know, it's a more transactional, higher volume, I would go with a, a form. But even then, I would still be asking, like your ability to find the problem causing churn is so important that you can't yeah. not talk to customers. You're not going to get to talk to all of them, but you got to be talking to clients because what they say, like, and this is why, so to your second question, would I ever require this as a part of canceling? I would exhaust a lot of other options before I made a requirement because what I need is someone showing up that is interested in helping me solve this problem. Hmm. If I make it mandatory, then I have someone that's kind of going through the motions and that just puts more noise into what I'm hearing, right? Yeah, you got someone that can be on there that's just pissed off about having to do the call. And so now they're going to trash a lot of parts of the product that maybe weren't an issue, right? They're going to look for every yeah. little thing and some of them might be truth or not. So I need someone Thanks on the other call. Oh, really, you off. That's the only thing they're yeah, doing. Yeah, exactly. So you're probably not going to require it, but yeah, I'm going to get on there and just let me ask them a favor. And yeah. I've never had a situation where when I'm going like, we're going full tilt on solving churn where I haven't been able to get enough people on the call just by asking them for a favor. Because like we're in B2B. They're also building businesses too. They know what it's like to have a customer cancel their product. And mm -hmm. so to ask them a favor and just say, look, it's a gift. 15 minutes, you tell me when, I'll show up. I promise you it's not a high pressure save situation. I'm just trying to learn. Mm -hmm. And you, know, you make the ask once or twice to the same client, You know, 80% of them are going to jump on a call. Did I answer your two questions? It does. And I'm glad you gave the talk track. That was going to be my follow-up because you're really good at this. Like, what are the words that you use? And so, right, you said like favor, Let me run through that again. Cause I think there's just, there's probably a lot of people who have the desire to do this, but they don't know the how. And you're, like I said, you're, I've seen you execute this and you're really great at it. So like, if I'm leaving, how are you talking to me? Like, what are you saying to me to get me to want to get on the call with you? You know, so most of the time it's going to, what people are scared of is it's a feedback call disguised as a sales pitch to stay yeah. on the product. So I completely disarm that, even though in the process of doing these exit interviews, I have saved, sometimes the save rate is higher than 50%. Mm -hmm. Depending, there's a whole lot of factors that lead into it, but that is not my primary intention. And I completely disarm it in the first line of the email. If they were email in saying, hey, I need to cancel. I'm like, hey, I've got that taken care of for you. Your next invoice date was this. You won't be billed. 
any issues, let me know. So right away, I give them what they want. And I say, the next section is, hey, every day I wake up, I take it to the mission. Every day I wake up and my team wakes up to solve X problem for people just like you. And I'm bummed that we fell short. It would mean a ton to me if you would jump on a call. And I all say the words like feedback is a gift. Somewhere in there, I'm kind of giving you the bullet points, not word yeah, for yeah. word. Don't go type this out. <laughs> but, you know, I'm going to say, you know, feedback would be a gift. I'd love to know where we fell short. I'm here to learn. And then I say, so I can better serve people like you in the future. So then they know that it's for me. They're going to help me get better. And it's for people like them. And so, you know, and I'll, I'll even, you know, subject line, I need help or subject line, can you do me a favor if I'm following back up? Because it really is a favor. And the number of times when I got on those exit calls and I found out that the problem was something we absolutely had solved and it was just a matter of miscommunication. Again, like I've had situations where we had more than 50% save rates on the back of those calls. To answer your question. It does. And I just want to say one thing to anybody who runs a B2B SaaS company who's listening to this. What you just heard on this podcast in the last four minutes, if installed properly, compounded over six to 12 months, can make you a lot of saved revenue. Implementing literally the past four minutes of this podcast into your cancellation flow can have a material impact on the enterprise value of your company. I just wanted to like take a breath and call that out explicitly for the people listening. Because I don't, what I don't want is people listening to this pod and being like, oh yeah, that sounds like an email. I'm going to go you know, make my lunch. Like, Guys, if you're not doing what Johnny just outlined, don't sleep on the mathematical reality of the impact that implementing a process like this can have. Like, That was a very valuable five minutes. Just yeah, wanted cool. to call some attention to it. <laughs> I'm glad it helped. Yeah, so yeah. the next challenge that founders have, when if, if you start doing this, then you hear a lot. You're getting qualitative input, but you need a way to make sure that it's actually true. And so the, the best, you know, good, better, best, you want to stack these strategies for trying to diagnose, we're trying to create a system that will diagnose churn when it happens in our product. We'll go right to the problem. We need all three of these strategies stacked together. The last layer of this strategy is to make sure that we have some usage metrics mm. in the product because what people say and what they're doing are oftentimes different. You think they don't know your product as well as you do. You know it like the back of your hand and you have probably have lots of you know terminology and lingo. I remember we were onboarding into an LMS recently and we had, you know, probably four or five weeks into the process of onboarding into it, we had to be like, hey, can you just send us a glossary of your terms? Because all of the like, the way your database yeah. is structured and the, the it, it's confusing to us. So that will happen to your clients, especially depending on when they're turning in the customer journey. So we want a way to go validate hey, they told me the X feature wasn't working. I need to be able to go and make sure that they ever tried actually using that feature. So yeah. I need a way, you now they can be, there's very crude and very you know scrappy ways to get some usage metrics. And there's like full on products where you can go and embed them into it. But you need a way to go validate that the feedback that they're giving you is reflective of what they actually did in the product or didn't do in the product. You have a way to validate that from a, on an individual account basis. And then of course, across a macro basis. So what I might find is I'm doing lots of exit interviews is there's a part of our software that is very difficult to use. 
I need to be able to go and look at our usage data and make sure that there's something that shows that to be true. If I go to the usage data and I see that it's actually the most used part of the product, meaning some conflicting signals, I know I've got to keep digging. Those two things need to match up because people, unfortunately, whether they do it intentionally or not, the words they use and the feedback they give isn't always true or fully informed. I hit on something in this last one that's like a very deeply held belief for me that I love. And I just, there's two specific groups of founders or teams that I want to talk to. And it's about usage metrics. I'm not going to go completely down the nerd rabbit hole of the how and you know the technical side and the whole nine yards. But what I want to say is this, group number one, I want to talk to the early stage founders who are building right now. I'm not saying you should go spend a month of getting on the market, instrumenting for metrics on something that doesn't exist yet. I'm not saying that, but I would at least have a plan. Use a tool like Segment or something, which is you know free up until a certain number of active users, whatever. Like something where you can, as you build, just be like, oh, clicking this button or this database call or whatever probably feels pretty important to like my customer journey. I'm gonna go put that line of code in there and just instrument so I know when are they booking the appointment, sending the message, getting the result, generating the report, whatever the like value component of the software. So if you're building or you're relatively early, like take the steps now so it doesn't become a behemoth of a project when you have 2000 users and you realize you have no idea what the hell any of them are doing, right? So that's mm-hmm. like to the early stage guys, to the later stage teams who might have ignored this and now you're wrestling with it in your roadmap because you're not sure if it's like revenue generating or not the through line johnny that you just illustrated of like you can't get to world-class retention and world-class churn resolution unless you know how the hell people are using the software in the first place so if you have a small engineering team it might take you one or two or three sprints to get a platform fully implemented it's worth it as long as you use the data to enhance the customer experience and correct the gaps and retain. And then you can start to build customer health indices and you can start to do proactive churn outreach based on data and like this whole new world of like the stuff that you can layer on the best scenario that you just laid out, the things that that unlocks. It's like this magical playground where it's like we're running technology companies. Like as long as we don't get in our own way, we have access to all the data that we want on demand. And sometimes it's like this battle. And I say this from experience because we didn't do this and I had to go justify it on my roadmap and go fight for it. Like it took some time and it took some money. If you look at engineering roadmap as money, which you should be like, it took investment to get instrumented. But the things we were able to do after we instrumented the product properly, it was a whole freaking new world. So I just like if you're a product person or like a product led CEO and you're thinking about like, man, is this the most important thing to be working on? I don't know if it's the most important, but I would index pretty high towards like, if you're not sure how people are using the tools you built and you're not sure why they're leaving, the answer probably lies in the output of this instrumentation. And I would prioritize it accordingly. Like you can't sleep on this stuff. Both of the things we're talking about are making sure that you look, you're going to have to make, we did an episode a couple weeks ago on like good leaders make good bets. Part of making great bets is making sure you have these pools of insight that you can go to, to calibrate your decisions. Mm -hmm. So talking to your customers when they leave, you have, if you create a system that allows you to do that, you've got a pool of insight. You need another pool of insight to say, how's our product actually being used? There's lots of different ways to get there. I mean, Matt, in the early days of building Silvertrack, I just got one report monthly from our developers on Mm -hmm. essentially how many reports 
did they run? Like what was their demand on our system yeah. in certain areas? And I could, I use that as a, Hey, red, yellow, green. I tr- we plotted it against last month's activity. And I said, which ones went up, which ones went down. And those, you know, the ones that were going down were the people that I was calling. So it doesn't have to be super fancy. You can be scrappy yeah. in the early days, but you need to think about how am I establishing the pool of insight that I'm going to draw on when I've got to go make, you know, some potentially very high stakes decisions. Yeah, you're hundred percent. And honestly, you can like, can wrap your head around it in a simple spreadsheet, right? Where it's just make a list of the questions you would like to be able to answer, make a list of red, yellow, green. How can you find the answer? Then make another, the next column is like, what would I do with the answer if I had this information? And the next column is what do I think the impact on my customer attention would be if I implemented the strategy that this answer, yeah. this question unlocked? Like yeah. four columns. And if you like just take an hour and write out, you know, the top 12 questions you want to answer about how people are using the thing that you spent years of your life building, the right solution with the right amount of fidelity, like it will reveal itself. And then yeah. you can go prioritize accordingly. Right? So sometimes it's just like, you got to get that brained up. What do I want to know? Can I know it? What would I do with it? What do I think the impact of that strategy would be? Like that's enough yeah. to prioritize just like building the feature. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. The bonus section here, and it's not always required. There's times when I've done this and times when I haven't, is just as much as we're studying the customers that are leaving, it's really helpful to go look at our best clients. Like yeah. what are they doing? So if you had a bonus for establishing great diagnostics, like the first step to solving churn is to finding and defining the problem looking at who are our customers that are winning and saying what is unique about them that is missing from our clients that are turning can be a helpful exercise as well. So from there we get into what I like to do is help prime founders with what are the potential drivers of churn? Like where if it's not done well, kind of give, you know, nine different areas in the business things to consider so that as you are looking at the data, you're looking for confirmation of Hey, is it one of these nine things? There's really like nine potential drivers of churn. And it's helpful to know what those are when you go start breaking down, when you go to digest the data and all of this insight that we've gathered in step one. So I start with the beginning of the, the user journey, right? We say, hey, at the, when's the first point of interaction? It starts in positioning, right? How are we positioning our products? When they land on our website, they see our first ad, they interact with the first piece of content. Like, are we making promises? that are aligned with what we actually deliver yeah. in our products. And first off, I'll say when we solve churn, I start at the higher up and earlier it is in the user journey, that's where we're going to start solving churn because like to use my favorite term here, Matt, we got to make sure we're solving the root, not the fruit. Mm. If we don't look all the way at the beginning, if we know our positioning is off, no matter what we do downstream, we're not going to solve the problem. Like we didn't keep yeah. on getting customers that we find ourselves in save mode. So Dude, it's um, the right place to start. It's the right place to start. The simplest way I ever had anyone explain churn to me is they said, churn is like this. A customer thinks they're buying X. You're delivering Y. The bigger that gap is, the more likely yeah. they are to quit. And they might look like the same thing and the gap gets bigger over time, or maybe the product changes, or maybe their needs change. There's a thousand reasons, or there's probably eight more reasons because you have a list of nine things. But the, the, the point is that like, there's always what they think they're buying and what they're actually receiving. And our job is to close that gap. And the quicker we can close that gap, the less churn is going to have. Like, but it's just it's a gap between those two things. We always, as founders, we think they're the same. We built a hammer. Everything's a nail. 
I'm going to smash you a new piece of wood. Let's go. But it's just, it's yeah. never quite that simple. There's always that gap. So like starting at the point of sale, the beginning of the journey, if we're already way off between X and Y, nothing gets solved till that gets solved, man. Yeah. The next area to look at is how can we increase the commitments that the client is making at the point of sale? If we know that there's a, a lift associated, if it's not a simple like plug and play product and you, there's some setup involved, some investment of time and money on the client's end to get to their desired outcome, sometimes lowering the commitment from the client is counterintuitive to getting them over that hurdle. So these are things like, can we implement setup fees? Should we be asking for longer term commitments? You know, I think it's easier to win the sale with a low commitment. Sometimes it's hard to deliver the desired outcome without the right amount of commitment. So I'm, I'm going to look at, after I look at positioning, then I'm going to look at, are we, do we have the right level of commitment that still keeps the net pretty wide? We're winning the, you know, the number of clients that we want to, the deals we feel like we should, but it's putting us in a position, you know, it doesn't stop at the sale, you know, to get them to your desired outcome, we got to get them all the way through onboarding. So it's in a, putting us in a position where we've got their attention and their focus throughout that onboarding phase. Yeah. Customer count is kind of a vanity metric. I'm just going to say it. And I feel like people won't agree with me and that's okay. That's why we're here. Chop it up. But like, I look at that and it's like, man, if you can raise the commitment and deliver better results with additional depth, right? And a higher high likelihood of success for a fewer number of people, and then figure out after you've solved that, how to go scale your demand gen to deliver that same depth of solution to more people like that. Like that is the way, right? You go deep first and then replicate the deep outcomes, right? So Mm -hmm. everyone like freaks out and they're like, oh, what if I increase my prices so I can, you know, do X, Y, Z and deliver better results, but I don't close as many deals. I'm like, guys, your business is a math problem. Just figure out the break even. How many less deals do you need to close to hit the growth goals you already had? Yeah. But then those people are going to stick around. They're not going to be pissed off because you did a halfway job onboarding them. Like it's a yeah. win. As soon as you set down, like there's just like this correlation between like customer count and how successful am I as a business owner? And like, you yeah. got to set that down. Like goals are written in revenue for a reason. There's a lot of ways to get there, but it's not about just like hoarding money, right? The more of a price point you have, the more you can invest within a certain yeah. like growth margin confine to make the product better, deliver better results. Like it, everybody wins as long as you do a good job as a leader, you know? So yeah. like, that's a hell yeah for me. In fact, we should log this as a future episode. How often do we have to overcome money mindsets with how people are pricing their products? They would, they could solve a lot of their challenges. If they would just charge more like this, this being one of them. So number two was we look at how can we increase the commitments? The third thing I'm going to look at is how are we handing off from sales to customer success? This comes down to time and trust. If someone has given us the green light, hey, I have a problem in the business. I believe you can solve it. I'm welcoming you into my world to give you more time and attention to come in and solve this problem. If we lose all that trust and all that's been communicated in sales and it's not transferred over to the customer success team and we're not building momentum to that, oftentimes companies will try to just endure the handoff. Like you're just trying to get a customer through it. Like, hey, I didn't cancel. But there's actually, it should produce momentum. Yeah, It should increase in the trust and timeliness in which we are delivering that desired outcome. So the next place to look is how are we handing off that context? We learn a lot in sales. How do we make sure we're being sensitive to the timelines that we've set? Can we quickly 
turn that momentum and all. And think about the times when you've made a purchase. The more time that goes by without getting the value, the more time you have for regret. And we want to really avoid that. We don't want them second guessing. We don't want someone else getting that time and attention. We want to very quickly transfer into to customer success. So of how we acquire customers, there's those are three drivers that will have an influence on churn. And that's where we're going to start. The next layer is how is our customer success team involved? But I want to pause for a second. Don't want to fire Hosey here. The next three focuses are on customer success. But any final notes on on how we acquire customers and their influence on churn? No, I think you nailed it, dude. I think that you know, if, if I were to read back what I heard from you, it's essentially A, make sure that we're trying to replicate our best fit customers. So we minimize the gap between what they think they're buying and what they're actually buying. Make sure that we don't artificially decrease the commitment that's required to get the result that we said we're going to get them, even if it means that we help you know a fewer number of people, but do a better job at it. And then making sure that I was laughing when you were talking about the handoff. I remember in that old movie uh, from Drew Barrymore, 50 First Dates, right? She's got like, the head injury and she wakes up and it's the same day every day, yeah. right? Like imagine like a typical mid-market or enterprise sales motion. You talk to an SDR and they're like, oh, tell me about your company. When did you start? What's the biggest problem you're trying to solve? And then they do a crappy job handing off to the AE and the AE is like, yo, Johnny, nice to meet you, man. Tell me about your company. How long did you start? What's the, what's the biggest problem you're trying to solve? And then they're like, all right, like I'm gonna do this twice. And then you give that person money and the person on the other side of the transaction is like, yo, Johnny, when did you start? What's the problem you're trying to solve? Like, I don't know about you, man. I'm ready to throw a chair when that happens. Like, I'm out. Yeah. So like, yes, we should act like we all work for the same company and talk to people. Because if that situation I outlined happens, what you're telling that customer is that they are not important enough for two people who are literally paid to ensure that that customer succeeds. That customer is not important enough for those two people to take 30 seconds and have a conversation or read the notes in the CRM or put them in there or whatever. It makes them feel yeah. like they're not important. And the quickest way to make sure that someone churns is to make them feel like you don't care about them. Awesome. So the, the customer success layer to this is, and I'm very intentionally not talking about product yet. We'll talk about why most founders want to jump straight to, I think, chomping code. At the gate. I'm chomping at the bit. <laughs> Yo, yeah, code's <laughs> going to solve my churn problem. But very intentionally, we look in how we're acquiring customers first. And second, we're going to look at how our team is servicing. So the three areas I'm going to look at are one, how are we onboarding our clients? Two, how are we engaging them? What's the frequency in which we're engaged with them? And then third is how are we supporting? How are we making sure that when they have a problem, they're able to get that answer quickly and hopefully without any involvement from us. People don't want to talk to us. They want their problem solved. So mm. in customer success, I'm going to go audit those three areas. And then the final three areas we're going to look at in reducing churn are related to the project. We intentionally start with the first two layers of how are we acquiring our clients and how are we showing up in customer success because they're the fastest to solve for, they're the fastest to iterate on, and they're lower costs. But like when we go build our product, we need that problem extremely well defined. And we got to be sure yeah. it's a cannonball. Any changes to the product are a cannonball for the most part, just generally compared to what we just talked about, much more of an investment there. So when it comes to our product, we look at functionality. Is there something missing that our clients need it to do? Two, usability. Does the function exist, but it's just very hard to use? And then three, reliability. Is it easy to use and it's functional? It just is like goes down frequently or is slow to load. So those three things, all of our feedback about the product, if we plot into one of those areas, um, will help us. Again, the whole effort here is to define the problem we're trying to solve. And so, yeah, Matt, that's where we look at. I'm curious to get your thoughts on the, the customer success layer and the, and the approach on product. 
I love everything you said, but I want to challenge the sequencing on the product one a little bit. If you have reliability issues, that's probably the first place you need to go. There's a model. So I don't know who did this, but whoever they did, they're super smart, but they essentially adapted like Maslow's hierarchy of needs for software. Right. And so, you know, if you think of like the foundation. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll find. I don't have it in front of me. I'm doing this from memory, so I apologize if I butcher this. But but like the foundation is like, is it available? Right? Like, is it up? Is the server working? Et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's the foundation. And then the second one is speed. Right. So like, really, if your software goes down, or if it's unreliable, meaning it's super slow, or it crashes, or has a ton of bugs, like you can build the greatest features, but if it they only work half the time to get the outcome that they're supposed to get. Like they're not the greatest features because they don't yet work. Like you have a like a sick looking car in your driveway and the engine doesn't turn on, you are not traveling from point A to point B, period, full stop. So I would just encourage like it's so tempting for like product, you know, minded people, shiny object, like I'm one feature away. Like, no, you're not. But if you have reliability issues, I would normally triage them or say it more oh, accurately. Yeah. Have reliability issues that are in the way of your customers getting the outcome that they pay you to get. You got to solve that yesterday. Do that. hundred percent. That's a great, great point. I will consider the model revised. <laughs> that is a great, the sequencing is much better there. I kind of grouped all of product. Like if product, if you're doing all of the other two, if you're acquiring customers, well, you don't have any, you know, what I would take a client through is a red, yellow, green in each one of these yeah. categories. You know, quick assessment. If you're yellow and green on layers one and two and how we're acquiring clients and how our customer success team is showing up, and I'm looking at layer three, there's a, a lot more analysis that's going to go into making sure that we are, we're sequencing the upgrades correctly. So yeah, I think when we get to product, 100% prioritize reliability ahead of time, yeah. but that bucket has a chance to like really grow and we want to make sure we're super specific, you know, building prototypes, getting validation from those same concepts that that was missing all before yeah. we go launch that, you know, cannonball that is changing our product. No doubt, man. I love it. I think it's a, honestly, it's a great framework, dude. It's a very cool. comprehensive way to look through it. Cool. I love it. Well, well, to recap, if churn is a problem, in the business, it should probably be the problem you're solving right now. You're going and finding more customers. It just keeps you on the treadmill. And hopefully today we said, you know, first step is diagnostics, make sure that we know the problem. And then we looked throughout the user journey and said, what has to be going well? Quick traffic light system for you to assess. Am I doing, you know, meeting expectations here, exceeding expectations, or could this potentially be causing churn? And with that, Hopefully it gives a good way to think about how we resolve and uh, reduce churn in the business. I love it. I wonder how many people are going to watch this episode and then watch it again with a pen and a piece of paper and start jotting down the next two quarters worth of CS sales, marketing and uh, and product initiatives they got going on. It's a good yeah. one to go through with a notebook, man. That was a great one. Totally. Totally. Go. Awesome. All right, man. Thanks for jamming, man. See you next time, Johnny. Later. Later.